Hi-ho, it's Chad here. Um, two things. One, trigger warning, racism. Not on our part, hopefully, uh, but on the part of the Spike Milligan episode. It's real racist. And we're going to talk about that, but I just thought I'd warn you. Two, you're going to notice in the episode that my audio is not good. In fact, you might call it bad. Not sure what happened. I think something got tripped up. Some kind of noise reduction software got turned on that ended up taking my voice and and lowering the volume and raising the volume, lowering the volume, raising the volume, making me fade in and out. Uh, I did my best to clean it up, but I'm not a sound engineer. I'm just a simple podcaster trying to make his way through the galaxy. Hopefully it's listenable. If it's not, they're not that great of episodes anyway, so you won't be missing much if my terrible audio is too much for you. Uh, Anyway, enjoy the show. I am Miss Picky. Oh, well, do you work around here? Uh, listen, yellow thing, uh, do you see this star here? Oh, yes, it's very pretty. And, uh, do you know why it is there? Well, uh, Hmm? perfect attendance? I am the singing star of this show. A singing pig? Uh, that's very funny. Uh, uh, Kiss your feathers goodbye, uh, bird. Hi ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host Nick Jackson. Nick. Nick, Nick, yeah, we knew, we knew, we knew when we started watching a television show from the 1970s that there would be certain elements that would sneak through that were acceptable back then, not, not, not uh, okay, but acceptable back then, not acceptable, how about this, accepted back then, and uh, that don't play now, that come across as offensive, politically incorrect, problematic. But holy shit, man, I was not ready for Spike Milligan. So there are levels to this, too, because on one level, I'm the kind of person that thinks if you cross the line enough times deftly, you create art. And that's not necessarily saying that it should be shock for shock's sake, but... You're saying you're a Mel Brooks fan. Exactly. But at the same time, like, I'll still defend South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. And that's the second most meticulously offensive movie that I've ever seen. The movie's great, though. It is, and it's a musical, which just makes it harder. The The episode, the first episode that we have up tonight, it doesn't just fail on one level. It fails on multiple levels. Before we get started, this is a Feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Please check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please check out LunaticDaring.com. We have our watch list, our, bibli- our bibliography, all of our episodes. It's a nice little site that I built with Squarespace. Hey, Squarespace, if you want to sponsor us, Squarespace. We are currently going through the Muppet Show uh, two episodes at a time. Uh, we got a, we got a little bit of a rough road tonight, <laughs> as you may have gathered. Yeah, but uh, but we're gonna power through it. We promised in our very first episode that we were gonna you know hit these things head on, and we were not going to try to gloss over problematic elements. And um, we have a few problematic elements to talk about. So let's get started. Let's get things started. <laughs> It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Mr. Spike Milligan! Would it surprise you, Nick, to know that this has a cultural content warning? I mean, not as much as it would surprise me to find out that it didn't. It surprises me that Spike Milligan doesn't have a cultural content warning tattooed on his forehead. Well, before we get to (laughs) the Muppet Show's 
tribute to the world, international extravaganza. Uh, before we get to that, I'll tell you a little bit about our special guest star, Spike Milligan, actor, comedian, writer, musician, poet, and veteran. Terrence Allen Milligan was born April 16th, 1918 in Ahmed Nagar in India, which of course was a British colony at the time. His mother was English and his father was Irish um, and he was in the British army, hence, hence being born in Western India. He was an army brat like you. When he was little, his family moved from Poon, India to Rangoon, the capital of what we used to call Burma. In 1931, when he was 12, the family moved to southeast London, and Terence saw Great Britain for the very first time. Uh, He would live in the UK for the rest of his life. After high school, he worked as a clerk, started playing jazz coronet, and joined the Young Communist League. In the 30s and early 40s, he worked as an amateur jazz vocalist, guitarist, and trumpeteer, but then he got called up for military service. He served in World War II as an artillery signaler on the south coast of England, but was then deployed to North Africa and then Italy. That's some serious war stuff. On the eve of him getting promoted to bombardier, he was wounded in action, taking mortar shrapnel in the leg, and his commanding officer demoted him because he just didn't like him. During his whole time in the war, Spike was playing music, telling jokes, and making up stories with his fellow soldiers. After he got out of the hospital, he ended up becoming a full-time entertainer in the army and formed a jazz band and a comedy group that would play at parties for soldiers. After the war, he returned to jazz, but he also wanted to break into radio as a comedy writer. Around this time, he made friends with a guy named Harry Seacombe, Michael Benteen, and a name you may recognize, Peter Sellers. These four would go on to form the radical comedy project The Goon Show, which started airing on the radio in 1951. Hear that sound, dear listeners? I wonder what it is. (laughs) It was El Alamein, 1942. The sound of chickens has specially been added for people living in rural districts. (laughs) Rommel's treasure, part iron. The hindquarters of the Africa Corps. Hey, General Rommel! Hey, General Rommel! Hey, General Rommel, where are you? Fast is loose. Ah, there you are. The British have broken our line. Yes, all are washing in the mud again. Despite being a radio show, The Goon Show performed in front of a live studio audience, and sometimes Spike would warm up the crowd by playing the trumpet, while Sellers sat in on the drums. The Goon Show was huge. During its third season, Spike suffered the first of several mental breakdowns, and would battle manic depression for the rest of his life. In 1951, he became convinced that he had to kill Peter Sellers, which, to be fair, he's not the only person who has ever thought that. And he tried to get into the man's flat armed with a potato knife. But instead, he walked straight through a plate glass door and had to be hospitalized. After The Goon Show, Spike tried a variety of television projects in addition to his guest appearances on variety shows and whatnot. He had a couple of shows with Sellers, a show directed by Superman 2 and a Hard Day's Night director, Richard Lester. And in 1963, they released a 15-minute show called The Telegoons, which used puppet versions of the characters they had developed on the radio show. It was supposed to be like the puppet lip-syncing through their old radio productions, But the BBC wouldn't give up the rights, so they had to re-record their old bits, kind of like Taylor Swift is doing right now. They had to re-record their old bits (laughs) and then have the puppets mouth along with their new versions. And this went on. It only lasted for two series. Spike was known as the master of the ad lib of improvisational comedy. He was kind of notorious for it, like the time he was interviewed live on air and then stayed in the studio for the news broadcast. And constantly, live on TV, he kept interrupting the anchors and inserting his name into the news stories. He was banned from ABC after that. How are we judging mastery here? (laughs) 
1969, Spike starred in Blackface in a sitcom. It was designed to satirize racism in Britain, with Spike playing a half-Pakistani, half-Irish factory worker. The show was not well-received, and even in 1969, people thought it was in poor taste. So, wow, it might have been bad. If it, if, in 19, if it was considered racist in 1969, uh, he did a tiny bit of acting, uh, some on stage. And uh, he was in Ken Russell's 1971 movie, The Devils, but his scene was cut out. Uh, he also wrote poetry and comedy songs. He drew satirical cartoons. He was a champion for environmental. He wrote a seven-volume account of his time in the war, and the first book was entitled Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, which is amazing. That's the funniest thing I've heard from him so far. He was married three times and had six children. He suffered mightily from bipolar disorder, and the breakdown that I mentioned earlier was by no means the last. He was treated for deep narcosis, um, you know, which is the, uh, you know, sleeping too much. Quote from him, I cannot stand to be awake. The pain is too much. Something has happened to me. This vital spark has stopped burning. Milligan died from kidney failure on February 27, 2002, the age of 83. He wrote his own obituary, which stated on more than one occasion that he, quote, wrote the goon show and then died. His headstone, at his request, says, I told you I was ill. I've, I've seen, he might not have been the only one that did that, but I've seen those headphones or those headstones. Fun fact, in 1974, Spike was arrested for shooting a trespasser with an air rifle, citing self-defense. See, the case was dismissed. Spike Milligan's a legend. No goon show, no Monty Python. Hmm. I feel like he, I mean, you mentioned that he was a jazz musician. I could see a lot of his comedy trying to emulate scatting, but it doesn't, that in itself isn't going to play with the other people on stage. He's not, like I, I've performed improv and I'm not going to pretend that I was a great improviser, but you're always acting in service to the scene. And every time we saw him on screen tonight, he was just sort of like a force that everyone else had to work around. Like I said, he reminded me of a culturally unrelatable Robin Williams with slightly less cocaine. I can see the comparison. I also, I feel like there are some key differences. Robin has absolutely made jokes that he probably shouldn't have or that don't age well. But there's there's a heart to Robin that's absolutely missing in Milligan. Okay, so this is The Muppet Show, episode 317 with special guest star Spike Milligan, produced December 1978. Thus, it came out like spring of 79, directed by Peter Harris. Come in, knock, knock. Spike Milligan? Yes. 30 seconds or curtain, Mr. Milligan. Now, I didn't show this episode to my kids. I want to be clear there. <laughs> I, we skipped this one. But uh, Scooter comes in and Spike is wearing a coat with many, many arms. It's all just a bunch of rubbish dialogue. It's 30 seconds to the curtain. It's 5 foot 11 to the floor. I'll take the curtain. <laughs> Say, well, what's that you're wearing? My family crest. Well, what's that? Coat of arms. It's a bunch of rubbish dialogue that leads to a very bad coat of arms joke. Now, this this episode, I, I think you're right. Spike Milligan is not the only reason why this episode is a problem. They can't even get through the opening credits without something that would probably trigger the cultural content warning. When it gets to the uh, Statler and Waldorf bit in the opening credits, they are joined in their box by an Arab who, uh, immediate, who asked them how much to get things started. Which, again, we're talking the late 70s. We're talking the... Iran hostage crisis, we're talking the oil shortages. These stereotypes were very, very prevalent. So it already kind of starts starts out on the wrong foot. We have a funny funny bit with Gonzo, though, where a beautiful day monster comes in and bounces him like a basketball. So Kermit comes out, and he has prepared. Hey there, and thank you, and welcome again to The Muppet Show. Hey, tonight, our very special guest is one of England's wildest comedians, Mr. Spike Milligan. Uh, we especially wanted Spike on the show because tonight we're presenting an international extravaganza. 
You see, we just learned that the Muppet Show is being shown in 108 different countries. Uh-oh. Better get out your old army uniform. Bullshit. They don't represent all 108 countries. They're going to celebrate that tonight. And it turns out that is a giant mistake. And I don't mean in the show. I mean for us. <laughs> it's, uh... It's swing and they miss. There are ways they could have done it. I think that's part of the thing that bothers me the most is that it could have been done well and like it could have still been kind of edgy while not being quite as disrespectful. Our first number is a, a, a Japan themed number. We have uh, the, the mutations and they're doing kind of a I guess it would be a very generic sounding Japanese song. And then they're doing this kind of sword dance. And the joke is Fozzie comes in wearing a cowboy hat and he starts singing the song, the theme from Oklahoma. Ah, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. I'm going to say this right now. The Japanese Muppets were a bad idea. Yeah. They have very little eyes. <laughs> they are joined on stage eventually in the chorus by these whatnots that have been made to look Japanese. It's It looks bad. <laughs> I'm trying to be fair, because the thing is, I'm going to, there's no two ways about it, I'm going to be very critical of this episode, but I'm also, you know me to be an anime geek, and this is the same time period that Osamu Tezuka was producing a lot of work, and he was someone, his thoughts on women notwithstanding, was generally pretty progressive, uh, but he would draw people, he would draw black people in blackface, because the western media that he'd seen, and you have to remember he was in a very homogenous culture, depicted them in that way. That doesn't excuse anything. And he would have loved to see a more accepting and progressive world. In this context, I don't think Jim or Frank were like, yeah, let's just make fun of Japanese people. But also, there's, um, I guess, if I'm being charitable, I'll call it myopic. Well, do you know what I find surprising about this? We are just coming off the Harry Belafonte episode. They went to great lengths. And in this one, Africa is represented by a witch doctor with a bone through his nose. Yeah. That's where the disconnect hits me. Like, they could have used those masks if they wanted to represent Africa. But that wouldn't have brought back the masks. That wouldn't have been for an edgy episode. So we've discussed there's a way that they could have done this better, and that's absolutely part of it. But they would have had to give that care and attention to every country they decided to bring on. Yeah, and they didn't do that. (laughs) It also makes me think of something like the Moominshants episode, where they might not have spoken a lot of English, or some of them did, but like they're very clearly a different culture. And there was a very strong air of respect because Jim rep- or Jim respected their craft, right? But this is them trying to figure out how many jokes they can slide in and pivot on. And I, I just think it was short-sighted. I agree with you. I, I, I will say, though, for the record, I do think that there's something funny about every culture. Yeah. There is humor to be found in the differences between cultures that can still be kind. It can still be respectful, but still be funny. There's plenty of room. I'll even go on and say, like, a lot of my sense of humor is pretty warped for reasons. But at the same time, this also isn't necessarily funny. It doesn't feel like they're trying to give anything room to breathe. They're trying to cram as much in there as they can. That was going to be one of my other points is, thank God this episode isn't funny. (laughs) Yeah. This episode luckily doesn't work in any way. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like, I know a lot of people that will have you laughing against your will and make you complicit in something that you know is a problem, but you still respect craft at that point. And obviously we wouldn't be making this podcast if we didn't respect the craft that Jim and the other Muppet performers brought with them. This is just a major misfire. I agree. I mean, this number was already pretty bad. Like I said, I think you're going to earn your cultural content warning in about every scene. 
throughout the episode, except for one that involves Wayne jogging. All the all I can remember, all the six in my head are the Japanese Muppets. The backstage is full of all these people from all these different countries. The Australians are hanging from the ceiling, which you know is a funny down under joke. Did you see who the um who who uh who the uh the Australians were though? What puppets? I feel like two thirds of them were Jim and Frank. I don't know about the, the one in the middle. Yeah, the third one was like a generic one, but it was actually voiced by Spike. <laughs> okay, he actually did the voice, which doesn't happen often on the show. No, it doesn't. I I didn't recognize it. Hey, wait a second. What are the Australians up to? Huh? <laughs> We're up for this sport. What are you Yanks down to? Russians backstage, Arabs. You see, is it Eskimos? I don't know. Is that the right word to use? I don't even know if that's the right word to use anymore. Indigenous peoples of polar regions. I feel like if we try too hard, it, it makes it worse. Probably. Kermit has put Scooter in charge of making sure everything goes well backstage. Boy, this salute to all the nations you're planning must really be a biggie. Uh, well, uh, too big, maybe, Scooter. I, you know, I thought you were in charge of organizing all these people. Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Uh, Scotsmans and Venezuelans, uh, dressing room two. Uh, Arabs and Eskimos, dressing room three. Move it, boys. Then we get Spike's first number. Sam the Eagle comes out. This is where he felt like Robin Williams to me. Hmm. Um, Sam comes out and he says he wants to have a conversation with a proper English gentleman. Brings out Spike. And then Spike just mutters a bunch of nonsense for a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, I'm coming at the fucking dog. We've seen a big brown the eye. Oh, come on, I'll give you a few bottles, dog. Come on, come on. Wait a little bit a second. What? No, 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 no. Please, sir. You are not speaking the Queen's English. Why should I? She never speaks any of mine. And there's a Groucho Marx joke in there. There are some jokes in there. You can make them out. Right, but if you keep spraying stuff at a wall, eventually something's going to stick. It's just... It's just revved up. Uh, and I, I get the joke at the beginning is that you can't understand him because he's speaking like a thick cockney. That's fine. But that's how he talks the whole episode. <laughs> I can't remember who it was. It might have been Simon Pegg or Edgar Wright. But there was a comparison made in the aughts between British comedy and American comedy. Something was said to the effect that a lot of American comedy, and I think they were thinking specifically of stuff that like Judd Apatow would do, is just a bunch of people yelling at each other. And yeah. there's more to it than that, but that's a fair critique. And it's weird to see this knowing that there were British comics that said that. Because I'm like, but wait, Spike Milligan, maybe you guys have evolved <laughs> past this, but this is significantly worse. Silence when you speak to me. Listen, he talks the same as I do. No. Yes! He only talks proper when he's uh, on the stage. Where's that pencil? To be or not to be? <laughs> that is the question. See, he talks like that so that you people in the colonies can understand. He just kind of goes through a bevy of voices and then he confronts Sam about it and at the end he drops his drawers to reveal a British flag underwear. So I do... I do have to be honest. Um, this has caused some weird flashbacks to me working overnights at that hostel when I was in college because I would deal with hooligans from <laughs> everywhere. And I have never sympathized yeah. with Sam the Eagle as much as I did in this episode. I'm on Sam's side in this one, too. <laughs> For once. Kermit comes out and he says he ha he wasn't offended by that. And uh, Spike comes out and he's like, OK, good. And then he lowers his pants and he's wearing the American flag, which just makes him look like Apollo Creed. <laughs> I did. Th I did like this joke though when Statler. Ah, that's not clever. Anyone can drop their pants. Oh, did you notice that one of the Arabs backstage is just the Jerry Nelson puppet with like a scarf on his head? I didn't catch that. Uh, so we get backstage, and Scooter's trying to 
get all the arrangements made. And um, he's got the Eskimos and the Arabs, their language, Eskimos and the Arabs living in the same dressing room. And they're having confrontations over the temperature of the room. The Eskimos turn on the air conditioning to make it colder. And the Arabs set it on fire to make the room warmer. I don't think that's meant to be a racist joke. I just think it's meant to be a climate joke. It exists in the context of the rest of the episode. Kermit's brought in a bagpiper from Scotland to represent Scotland. By the way, when they say international, they mean mostly European. To be fair, that's also how American history is taught. Oh, the uh, the Scottish bagpiper, to his credit, wanted to play the bongos. He did. He wanted to mix it up. The music of Scotland, music of Scotland on stage, please. All right, lad. Right here, ready to go. Uh, what are those? They're my bongos. <laughs> we'll have a wee bit of primitive island rhythms. A bonny Glasgow samba. So uh, he comes out and, and instead he does play bagpipes and he plays uh, Brazil. And then at the end of the bit, he, which I think was kind of funny, his bagpipes get up and walk away. And he shoots it. <laughs> Just pulls out a gun and shoots it. If they've gone bad, you know what you have to do. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of like uh, Wilkins and Wonkins. You know, the, just the violence of those old. And the facial expression. I could see it. So then we get him up at Newsflash, where the newsman's going to present the news, but Spike is going to translate it by... Interpretive dance? Yeah, he, he interprets the news visually. So... By just giving you... It's really hard to explain. We've watched the Muppet newsman take a lot of abuse. A lot of abuse. This is the first time that I wanted to throw hands in his defense, because I was just like, his job's bad enough as it is. You're in there making it worse, and now you're assaulting him. You legit launched him into the air, and then you came back at the end to hit him with a hammer. <laughs> he does at the end hit him with a hammer. I was like, what a dick. Like, I probably lose in a fight with Spike, because let's be honest, he's got war experience, and he's unpredictable. To be fair, most of your life, he was a very old man. That wouldn't make me feel good about it. I <laughs> it's true. I just wrote down that it's basically a bunch of literal jokes is the idea, right? Like the, mm. he says something and because Spike doesn't make like big jokes. He just, I do like the end though, where the newsman says that the, ah! the search continues for a missing man sent by police to be dangerous and more than a little screwy. So like we mentioned earlier, then we get our UK spot, Wayne singing, singing a song called dog walk. Uh, no racism in this one. Yeah. Actually, that's a, a brief hope spot. It is just jogging part two, but... When I take my dog for a walk, he takes me for a run. Dragging me along the street is his idea of fun. From lamppost to lamppost, we jog along the street. From tree to tree to fire hydrant, look out, lady, watch your feet. Uh, Wayne is out walking his dog, taking his dog for a run. Um, and he's t It's a song by uh, composer Paul Tracy. And um, there's a great line in it where he... This is the other episode title where he says, Don't lick that baby. I thought that was funny. <laughs> He, it's very, I, I like, I like how it revs up. It gets more and more chaotic. What it kind of does is it captures the, the song itself captures the full experience of walking a dog in like one kind of two minute break. I don't look who's there, jolly good. It's the man with a baller hat. Walking with his English bulldog. Let's stop for a chat. Oh, oh. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? Thank you very much. Goodbye. 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 Stop that now. Don't lick that baby. His mother will object. I know you didn't mean it, but please show some respect. I actually thought it was kind of a fun song. I, 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 it's sad that this is the highlight of the episode for me. My, my highlight comes a little bit later, but it, yeah. 
after after the dog walking, Scooter and Floyd. Oh, hey, oh, Scooter. Yeah, hey, the band's all ready for the big American jazz number. Mm. Where's the little green honcho? Well, he's trying to keep things organized in the dressing room. It's just a mess around here today. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lack of international understanding. Oh, I'll see. <laughs> Nobody on the show tonight can understand anybody else. Oh, yeah? Then how do you explain that? And Floyd's like, well, what about that? And the chef is up in the, the top row of the the backstage, and he's holding court with all these different people from other countries, and they all seem to understand every word that he says. You're good. You're just fooling the hearing be heard. Yeah? Yeah. It's for the Did you notice that all the frogs are French? Yes, I did. That's the one racism I will accept. <laughs> it's filmed in Britain. It was it was going to happen. That did not bother me. I found it humorous. So uh now we go to a big musical number. Which was my highlight of the episode, actually. I thought this... Also, we get Bootsy Collins drums, which was a nice touch. Uh, the Electric Mayhem comes out, and they want to make sure you know, just like all proper artists, how liberal they are and how progressive they are. Now, me and a band here are hip to the international tone that our froggy foreman is trying to lay on tonight's show. <laughs> hey, but that's no reason for not including a little of the domestic product. And they sing America from West Side Story. The number gets, they're in like a bandstand, right? Like a red, white, and blue bandstand. Mm. Like you would see at a parade grounds. And then, of course, the number starts to get invaded by all the international people. And it becomes kind of this big international jam. This was probably the best part of the episode for me, for sure. And this, of course, this song is part of what won Rina Moreno and Oscar. Mm. Uh, Yeah, they, they, uh, you know, some Russians come out and they're playing. There's a mariachi band. The, The bagpiper comes back. Uh, I, there's a Hawaiian played by Menomina, which was good to see Menomina kind of getting some screen time. Mm-hmm. There was the witch doctor, which felt a little gross. There are no other representatives of the <laughs> of the, the continent there, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was a little iffy. Yeah, it's a it's a fun number. Like I, I like when it gets into kind of the dueling cultural instruments at the end. Uh, the chef has an accordion. Is accordion Swedish? I don't I think know. Accordion being German. Well, I don't think they were all necessarily playing their own culture's instruments either, but the thing is, looking at this, if this had been the finale that they were building toward, and they had to restructure the episode around that, I think it would have fixed so many things. I mean, they do do something similar at the end, but it just drops in a whole lot of problematic nonsense. Yeah, and just the the underlying frame, we'll get to it in a minute, but it's it's uncomfortable. So we get back uh, stage, and uh, Robin's talking to a guy who's clearly... Like a Spanish flamenco dancer, and uh, his name is Luis Greco. Does uh, Morse code tap dancing, which I thought was funny. I loved that part. I was like, I want to see him again. But then his tapping ends up uh, messing up the chef's souffle because you know souffles are very delicate. <laughs> but then he starts chasing him with a meat cleaver. <laughs> the chef does. The chef may be able to understand a lot of people, but he doesn't understand how to manage his emotions very well. So then Kermit comes out to introduce Spike's interpretive. It's a sketch called The Intergalactic Brotherhood of Man, Including Things. 
so. which is a random and according this is what Muppet Wiki said, and I'm going to agree with them. A very random and incomprehensible sketch. So I only had two notes on this one, and the first one you might bleep out, but he did legitimately choke that chicken. He did. He did choke that chicken. I wrote that's the only note I have is chokes the chicken. I've noticed that Statler and Waldorf are a little bit nicer this episode, and it's only because they're confused. So you can use Statler so. and Waldorf to keep them keen. Now, an appalling weather. Now, comedy weather. With a surprise ending. Now, who came first? That's a thing. Can we have our chicken back, please, mister? But enough about me and my troubles. That was the voice. Yeah, Spike does some nonsense with a lampshade, and I love the Muppets, and I love most of the Muppets, and I like New Zealand just fine, but these two episodes are, like, really overestimating how much we like New Zealand. Honestly, the Morse code flamenco guy probably would have carried me a little bit further if he'd received that amount of attention. Yeah, so Lou comes in and joins him in the sketch, and they're talking about boomerang fish, and it does feel like Spike's making it all up, making it all up as he goes along. It does feel like improv. But it doesn't... Not good improv. Yeah, I was about to say, I, like my, there's good improv, there's middling improv, there's bad improv. The cornerstone of it, in general, is to engage with your other players, and I don't think he really does that. I think he shifts gears too frequently. That's why I think improv is maybe not the right word, as much as, like, ad-libbing. Yeah. I just mean, like, he's just making the shit up as he goes, is what, it's, is what it feels like. Is this written? Who knows, man? I don't think Jerry Jewell could have written this, so maybe Spike wrote it down. But um, I think Jerry Jewell probably did write things, and Spike looked at it once and said, got it. This is utter nonsense, which would be fine. I'm totally down with utter nonsense. But it's not funny. It's not interesting. It's not clever. It's just lays there. Hmm. And the fact that it doesn't make sense is the least of its problems. Yeah. It was very strange. It was very weird. It was peculiar. It was kind of amusing. Yes, it was rather funny. It was incredibly funny. I loved it. Hilarious. <laughs> nice moment backstage, though. Kermit's trying to get everybody on stage for the Parade of Nations, the finale. And uh, no, and Piggy is very, Piggy seems very happy that Kermit's taken on this kind of international. Kermit, oh, Kermit, I just think it's wonderful that you have organized this Parade of Nations finale. Uh, yeah, well, it seemed like sort of a nice thing to do. Nice? Kermit, it's, 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 it's humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Oh, to have the citizens of the world yeah. on our little stage, mm-hmm. all races and colors, hand in hand, in brotherhood. Normally, I would agree with her. And then Kermit's trying to get everybody to go on stage for the finale, and nobody's listening, so Piggy has to... It's the Brotherhood bit. I love her so much. Um, and uh, she just tells everybody to shut up, and of course they shut up, so we can have our finale. Well, as a, as a fitting climax to tonight's international edition of The Muppet Show, here is a parade of the nations featuring our guest star, Mr. Spike Milligan, and dedicated to one of our very favorite countries, Disneyland. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a small world. Now remember, they were not owned by Disney yet, <laughs> and they do their version of It's a Small World. 
I've been to Disney World, or I was to, at Disneyland once, it's a long story. I've never actually been on and It's a Small World ride. Can we talk about the fact that the Muppets that are representative of different countries are all moving like they're mechanized? That's because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to mimic It's a Small World. Right, but it's unsettling given every, like, we're dealing yes. primarily with shallow stereotypes and... One note visual uh, indicators. Yeah. They're wearing a beret, they're French. If the episode had been handled better, it might have seemed intentional. It just, I don't know, it's just weird, different kind of unsettling, sort of like Miley Cyrus covering zippity Doodah. It's just... And, and the idea is that, like, they're doing this wholesome thing, which you know, anyone who's gone to Disneyland knows it's not wholesome, it's hell. But Spike is trying to get in the act, and Sam is chasing him around, which I thought was kind of fun. It was. I, it also... I started flashing back to that hostel again, and I was like, I... Sam wants to kill him, and he can't. I get it, Sam. <laughs> he is the guest star, but it does feel like they should have called the cops by now. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and Spike has a couple of funny moments in this, I think, where he's running around hiding from Sam. And then he shows up in a Charlie Chan outfit. Then he appears as a Chinaman with the big teeth and the mustache. And it's horrifying. <laughs> it's uh, it's Mickey Rooney level racist. It's, it's Breakfast at Tiffany's level racist. Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> it's a real rough moment. And now I'll give it to Sam. Sam's like, get off the stage. Like, Sam's disgusted by it. But you can't have that. You can't, you know, that's, that's, you know cake and the eating it and all that stuff but you also have to think about how sam is typically used because i think this might be the first time that he's been used in a way that uh that we agree with well yeah but that would play to our conscience because usually he's yeah. being portrayed as someone who's out of touch yeah and in this kermit feels out of touch. jim is back there singing mm -hmm. i think one of the snoths is there too wearing a wig like, it's a very motley crew of Muppets they put together to kind of represent all these countries. Again, it's definitely not representing 108 countries. No. Not even close. But if you clump them together enough. This was the number I probably enjoyed the most until my notes literally say Chinaman. Jesus, fuck. Dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. There's a straight Nazi salute. No, the Nazi salutes at the, like, at the end, didn't it? When he comes out to say goodnight. Um, I might be putting the two together because the the number keeps going. Yeah, yeah. So so it fades out. The, the number ends. It fades out, and we fade up. And Kermit's coming to say goodnight, but you still hear the music running, and he's like, "Well, it's time to say goodnight," even though some people want to keep singing. And then Spike comes out to say goodnight, and he gives a little salute, <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah. Oh no, Spike comes out, and he and he kind of says goodnight, and then they open the curtains back up, and they're still singing, and he goes back into the thing. And yeah, and he gives this little salute to the crowd. Wait, was he... It is a Nazi the, salute! Did I thought he gave the salute before the curtains closed, and then after the curtains closed, he came out with the headdress on. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. We might be getting our racist incidents tangled up. There are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. So he, you're right. He Before the curtains close, he gives a little Nazi salute, and then... Curtains close, and then when he comes back out, he comes back wearing a Native American headdress. <laughs> With a really bad impression. Also, as the credits roll, I, I assume that whoever would regularly be piloting Sam was just busy elsewhere, but you just see Sam's puppet leaning over, looking dejected. Like, he's just completely given up at that point. <laughs> I long for the subtlety of a rich little. Oh, 
bring back Rich Little. <laughs> oh. And um, he comes, yes. So he comes out as a as a Native American, and uh, and then he goes back and he lays on the ground in front of the set and like falls asleep. And tells the thing to start again. Let's be honest, man. He looks like he's living on the street. He does. <laughs> like that's what that that's what that final image looks like. I'm ninety percent sure that I've seen him on Muni. He also throws his pillow at Kermit. Say this with all love and understanding of the situation in San Francisco. He does look like certain denizens of San Francisco. <laughs> Again, Spike did suffer from mental illness, and we definitely don't want to make fun of that. I don't think that's what's going on here. The the episode in general was just a massive misfire. And it's weird to see it on this scale because so much happens in that short time span. It keeps getting worse and worse. And the, the Chinaman costume and then the um Asian American, please. The the Native American costume, like that that's those are the two most blatant ones in the whole episode. Yeah. But I think you're right. It's just a misfire. I don't want to spend any more time on it because it's not worth our it's not worth our breath. It's a bad episode. It goes on the dumpster pile. I will never show it to my kids. And like I said, we're just lucky there's nothing good enough in it to care. Yeah. Leslie Uggams, 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Uggams. Tell me a little bit about our very enthusiastic <laughs> guest star, Leslie Uggams. So we've got Leslie Uggams, uh, born May 25th, 1943 in Harlem, to... Juanita Ernestine, uh, who was a Cotton Club chorus girl, and Harold Uggams, who was an elevator maintenance and operator, and he also sang with the Hal Johnson Choir. Out the gate, she was stud or like headed for stardom and performance. She attended the Professional Children's School of New York and later attended Juilliard. She started her career in show business in 1951 as the niece of Ethel Waters on Beulah. She also featured at the Apollo in the same year alongside Ella Fitzgerald. In 1954, she released a record with MGM called Uncle Santa, which is a quote-unquote child-appropriate version of Santa Baby. She would become even more popular in 1958. People would start to recognize her voice pretty heavily on a show called Name That Tune, and one of the people in the audience ended up being a record executive that signed her for a number of different records. And they're like single records, but it's still it's a lot. In 1965, she married her manager, Graham Pratt, and they are still married today. They're noteworthy in particular because they're an early high-profile interracial marriage. To quote Leslie, they still got a lot of mail. In 1967, after Lena Horne declined the starring role, she starred in Hallelujah Baby on Broadway. In 69, she got her own variety show. She was the first black person to get one since Nat King Cole, I believe. In 1977, she would star in Roots and get her first Emmy nomination. In 79, she would receive a second Emmy nom. That's what I know her from. <laughs> you know her from somewhere else, too, but we'll get to that in a minute. She's in Roots. Uh, she was also in Backstairs at the White House, uh, for which she got another Emmy nom. And she's got a lot of credits to her name, so I'll just run through a couple. She had two episodes as herself on Family Guy. Of course, Seth MacFarlane would know who she is. She was on I Spy, Hollywood Squares, The Love Boat, Magnum P.I. She was in Sugar Hill with Wesley Snipes in 94. She played Blind Al in Deadpool in 2016. Yeah, that's right. You. She's also more recently been in empire uh as leah walker the bipolar mother of lucius lyon and she's in the immortal life of henrietta Lacks. so she's still active still acting too 
still, yeah, still acting as of this recording, I assume and hope that she's in good health. After the last episode, this is amazing, but I am two <laughs> minds on this episode. On her. Yeah, no, I, I am as well. And she enunciates like my grandma does, and it was super unsettling when I heard it. <laughs> yeah, let's, we'll, we'll talk about her enunciation. It's very distinct. Um, <laughs> we also had another special guest star for this episode. A big one. Yeah, a big one. One big bird from Sesame Street. So technically, the other guest star is Carol Spenny. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to go into a bio Carol Spenny. Watch the documentary, I Am Big Bird. Only our second uh, Sesame Street crossover. First one since uh, Bert danced with Connie Stevens. Who can explain it? Who can tell you why? Fools give you reasons. Wise men never try. Yeah, this is the second episode. All right, walk us through this not funny cold open. <laughs> uh, so we go. Oh, wait, sorry. Do the stats first. Do the stats. <laughs> Muppet Show episode 318 featuring guest Leslie Uggams, as well as our other big guest, Big Bird, produced between December 5th and December 7th, 1978, premiering in the UK on January 26th of the following year and coming to the States July 5th of 1979, directed by Philip Casson. Thank you, Scooter. Uh, it is true that Big Bird from Sesame Street is on the show tonight, right? Well, that's right, Leslie. Well, would you tell him that his younger brother is in my dressing room? There's no, like, surprise that Big Bird's going to be there. It's just, I agreed to do this because you said Big Bird was going to be here, and she has her priorities. And she also reveals that she has a large yellow egg stating that his younger brother has arrived. Does Big Bird canonically have a younger brother? Well, there is Little Bird, but I don't know if they're related. The chickens are all backstage and they go crazy over the size of the egg as well. She gave it, she did it with a big old smile though. She winks at the camera a lot. It bothers me. Yeah. It's, it's one of my big gripes unless it's being done. Like Mel Brooks can get away with it because he knows how to do it. She's here's the one thing I'll say that I, I, I did enjoy her. I thought she was enthusiastic. I really like her voice. Uh, Yeah. I was going to get to that in just a second. She's playing to the back row. Yeah. And not to a television camera. It's rough. Maybe she feels like she's surrounded by a bunch of puppets play it big, like like it's a cartoon. Maybe. I don't know. Like, the thing is, before I read her bio, I didn't think she, like, I figured she would have been another person that maybe was a model or something, or maybe she'd just been a singer and she wanted to sort of push her way into acting. But she's been acting for a long time at this point. Yeah. I don't understand. Maybe she just doesn't do comedy. I don't know. I feel like she's trying too hard. Yeah. I could listen to her sing for a month straight. Her voice is incredible. But we uh, we go to the Muppet Show theme, where a group of chickens are singing a line of the theme song in Statler and Waldorf's box. And I guess Gonzo blows out like a mating call or something. His trumpet quacks, and two, dunk, two ducks respond to the call. Given what happens later in this episode, you think Gonzo's into ducks, too? I think Gonzo's into legs. I, I think Gonzo has short, stubby legs, and there's like some sort of a weird, affectionate Napoleon thing going on. And you know what? I'm not going to shame him for it, but it's it's awkward. Freudian leg envy. um again i i feel like we should have had big bird chambered yeah having him show up at the the beginning is kind of weird maybe that's just there for the kids to be like don't worry kids big bird's coming yeah i guess uh but big bird peeks through the curtain during kermit's introduction to see if he's on yet and kermit lets him know and this is actually so big bird's supposed to be like emotionally the level of a a toddler right uh i think he's like six ish okay 
Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but we go backstage. We have Wesley and the Muppet Monsters, including Sweetums, Dog Lion, Mean Mama, Gorgon Heap, Timmy Monster, and the Mutations perform a song called Hey There Good Times, which was relatively recent when this episode was shot. It was from the 1977 Tony-winning musical I Love My Wife, which... Sounds like a Catskills joke. Yeah. The, <laughs> I, isn't that the name of a Chris Rock movie? Was that a remake? What's... Hey there, good times, here I am. But one, the one thing that I had to stand out from this was, again, I, I think like you said, she's playing to the back row, but also that voice is incredible. And it's weird to be so conflicted after such a problematic episode, just to be like, okay, so this particular skill set, she min-maxed, but like she min-maxed a subdivision of her charisma, and her singing voice is all the way up here. Her acting is just like, I don't know, maybe she's got the Hayden Christensen problem where she's good at like three things. <laughs> yeah, she sounds amazing. She looks great. Yeah, she's just playing it super big. She's playing it like a kid would play, like a child actor would play it. It's it, it does get a little distracting. Close your eyes though, this number's really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird way to phrase that, but I, I catch your meaning. It's a fun song and she sounds great. That's also kind of the fault of Philip Castle. Yeah. You have a director there for a reason. Yeah. We head backstage and Gonzo and his eternal slow burn of a relationship with Camila is on his way up to her dressing room for their first formal date. He expresses concern that he'll become so excited that he faints. Kermit says that if that happens, she'll have to give him mouth to mouth or rather mouth to beak, which I guess is this might be where that Sandlot bit was born. <laughs> um Gonzo, excited by the idea of this, faints, or maybe he's just practicing fainting. I like that Gonzo said he was sick. Sick with fear. Gonzo's a weird combination of id and super ego without ego, and I I can't explain it any more clearly than that. I'm also stunned that this is their first date. Yeah. Been acting like a couple for a while now. It's a slow burn. I, I now, think we can't count the Muppet movie because the in the Muppet movie, Muppet movie doesn't come out until after the season's over. Mm-mm. So people haven't seen the Muppet movie yet when they're watching this. Also, I could absolutely see Camila just putting the pressure on Gonzo to be like, so are we doing this or what? I see you talking a lot, Gonzo. What are you doing? What have you done for me lately? Oh, we're going to put in some Janet Jackson right here. But then we go to her dressing room and this, so Chad, sometimes I come out of left field with things and I know that you're very patient with me and I appreciate that. That's because I'm the editor and I can cut most of them out. I appreciate that too. There's a game called Marvel, well, there's a game series called Marvel versus Capcom featuring a number of, well, Marvel characters and Capcom characters fighting against each other. I am aware of it. Jill Valentine from the Resident Evil franchise is in there and sometimes, or one of her attacks is to summon the tyrant to come in and fight on her behalf. Now. In this bit, we find out 
that Gonzo can actively weaponize his girlfriend because her hay fever is so bad that she becomes a projectile. Chad, yes. she becomes a projectile. <laughs> she could take great. someone out. You remember how Scooter got taken out by that bowling ball? All you need to do is give her flowers. Also, what does she eat? But like... <laughs> Camilla, my apricot! These are for you! Oh gosh, I think, I think the room is spinning. I may faint. How was that? Did you notice the sound though? The sound that she makes when she flies across the screen is the, the same zoom. Is, is, is the Gonzo swoop. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's just a funny little scene of Camilla ping ponging across the across the set. I was loving it, but then we get to our next bit, and the second she goes flying through that window, I lost my shit because I wasn't expecting the carryover. <laughs> Doctor Bunsen Honeydew here at Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. Well, jeepers, you're about to witness the world's first demonstration of fireproof paper. So, Beaker's got an open flame. Yeah, he's got a blowtorch. Yeah, I, I have concerns. Uh, I mean, we'll get to that in a minute. We should actually explain what's going on. We go to Muppet yeah. Labs, where Dr. Bunsen Honeydew has Beaker demonstrate how impossible it isn't to set fire to his latest invention, which is fireproof paper. And, yeah, like Chad said, he Beaker Beaker's hand is holding a lit blowtorch. <laughs> so he can set yep. a waste paper basket on fire. Beaker's hair looks super flammable. Yep. And I felt sorry for Beaker before this started. I mean, to Beaker's credit, he responded very quickly. He went to grab water. Of course, this is one of Dr. Bunsenanidu's other inventions, which is flammable water to solve the energy crisis. Yeah, this is funny. Yeah, it's this is a good bit. It's Bunsen and Beaker and a bunch of fire. That's all I care, you know. Plus a flying chicken. Worse for me. And a flying and a, and a flying chicken to start it off with. That's it's everything you need let's go to this next scene where big bird is a dick so wait 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 big bird is six big bird is six big bird's parents might not let big bird watch the muppet show big bird lives on a street with tons of animals as far as big bird's concerned he might just be trying to gas miss piggy up because how tactful is the average six-year-old i'm big bird huh no kidding i'm a friend of kermit's oh yeah, we both come from the same neighborhood, Sesame Street. Oh, isn't that that cute little children's show with puppets? Uh-huh. Well, who are you? So, Big Bird's backstage, and to emphasize just how big Big Bird is, we see him towering over the railing. And he meets Miss Piggy for the first time, telling her that he and Kermit come from the same neighborhood, which I'm not sure that matches up, but we'll just let it fly, because maybe it's just, you know, object permanence and a six-year-old whatever. He doesn't know who Miss Piggy is, which is probably for the best. Like, if Big Bird has seen all the stuff that Miss Piggy does to Kermit, he might not be this friendly around her. Um, but she lets him know that... Who am I? I am Miss Piggy. Ah. Oh. Well, do you work around here? Uh, listen, yellow thing. Uh, do you see this star here? Oh, yes, it's very pretty. And uh, do you know why it is there? Well, uh, <laughs> perfect attendance? <clears throat> I am the singing star of this show. A singing pig? 
That's very funny. Kiss your feathers goodbye, bird. He finds the idea of a singing pig very funny, which Miss Piggy takes offense at, but I don't, I could see that be like Gonzo trying to encourage someone to go on with an act like, oh, that's great. I would love to do that act. Whereas if Gonzo would love to do an act, it's probably not a great act and you might take it as such, but he could also genuinely mean that. See, here's where I was at. I just got done watching Spike Milligan and I've watched this one. So everything's racist to me. (laughs) And when, when she laughs at her, like when she's like a singing pig, when he knows, when he just said, I'm here with a singing frog, uh, it felt racist to me. But he also compliments her at the end for a concussion because she does acrobatics too. So she's very versatile. (laughs) It is funny when she takes a swing at Big Bird and just takes a header off the balcony. Yeah. So then we go back to Leslie and New Zealand, which I'm going to call an odd pairing. Yeah. Again, they're pushing New Zealand, you know, Uh, because he's got boomerang fish and also eventually boomerang swordfish. But before we get to that, Leslie's got a song to sing. Well, before we get to that, we have a whole lot of fish puns. Really a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Well, thank you, Lou. And it's a thrill for me to work with a boomerang fish thrower. Well, I should think so. (laughs) Listen, Lou, what does it take to become a great boomerang fish thrower? Well, you gotta have soul. (laughs) And if you can't get soul, use halibut. (laughs) I shouldn't guess. But in that case, I use a catcher's mitt. Why? No, 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 don't tell me, let me guess. Uh... Just for the halibut? <laughs> You're catching on. <laughs> Listen, how did you acquire this talent? Was it an accident? No, it was on purpose. Even on that, like, her delivery is... It's excited, but it's also... Again, it's like you're playing to an audience of kids. Like, you're just like, oh, we know this. We're going to shout out the answer. Yay. And There's no... a little bit of a Sesame Street. Maybe it would have worked there. But Leslie sings a song called Here You Come Again uh, with Lou accompanying on the fish. The song was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wall, but it was a hit single for Dolly Parton in 1977. Leslie breaks so much during this number. She does. I mean, like, she's ducking boomerang fish. But she that scene at the end where she's dodging the sword fish that are sort of like a knife act, and then she just pops up and like smiles at the camera again. I just want her to stop looking at the camera. Her breaking, like, you gotta imagine what she's seeing, right? She's here with this puppet, it's throwing fish. There's someone off screen, probably Henson. There's somebody off screen who is then, after the boomerang fish comes off the screen, is throwing a fish at her. Yeah. You gotta imagine from her point of view what it looks like, and I think it's even funnier. I feel like there are better ways to play that, though. But again, she sounds great. Her voice is amazing. (laughs) She sounds so good. Like, I wish I could just be like, she's not great, but then every time she starts singing, I'm like, I can't stay mad. I'm going to be mad again, but why does she have to cheese at the camera? Played better, I think this would have been a very strong piece. I don't think it was played as well as it needed to be. We go to our UK spot, which seems like it shouldn't have been a UK spot. I didn't love it, but it's also... We don't get a lot of Miss Piggy for these episodes. Like, we get a little bit here and there, but this is Piggy serenading Kermit again, and I don't know, maybe... Mad about the frog. I know it's stupid to be mad about the frog. 
I'm so ashamed of it, but must admit the sleepless nights I've had about the frog. There's no, there's no gag. It, it's played too straight. Yeah. I watched it again tonight, and that's like three or four times I've watched it, and my eyes glazed over about halfway through. Hmm. I think the slow, the song's just too down tempo to keep my attention. Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go down tempo, give me something to look at, give me some jokes or something. I don't know. If uh, if it wasn't on our rundown, I don't think I would have remembered it was in the episode. That's fair. And now, Bear on Patrol. We've got a first appearance. This is for Bear on Patrol, which I guess is their Chips parody. Just 70s cop. We get to see uh, Frank and Jim pairing up again, although I don't think we usually see this particular pairing. No, Lincoln Fozzie? No. Patrol Bear has arrested a pig who does impressions of police officers, and impersonating an officer is a very serious thing. The chief, our one Link Hogthrob, uh, is too busy typing a report, George R. R. Martin style, one finger at a time. We're never going to read Winds of Winter. <laughs> it's honestly, part of me doesn't want him to release it just because so many of the fans are assholes. Yeah. Before we go too far into what happens in this, the pig that Patrol Bear has bought in seems like he's displaced from time because he looks just like Alex Winter. And I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't <laughs> ready for it. He does look like Alex Winter. That's a good call. I, I was looking at it, I was like, who does he remind me of, and why is this upsetting? Excellent! And it's Steve Whitmire playing him, and Steve Whitmire's voice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. The, the chief isn't paying any attention as Patrol Bear tries to lock the guy up, and the pig is very courteous. He allows Patrol Bear to go into the cell first, and then closes the door behind him. The chief still never looks up to let him out or anything like that. He just wants him to do an. Imp- he said he goes from saying that the impersonator is doing better impressions of Patrol Bear to asking him to do one of him and then critiquing that because it's not very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a good bit. Um, I, I I'm happy to see more of this in the future if this is something that's ongoing. Oh yeah, totally. Just to set up what 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 Bear and Patrol is going to be, uh, Fozzie's going to come in with a suspect of some sort. And Link is going to be so dim-witted that he doesn't know what's going on. Pretty much every Baron Patrol. <laughs> I guess at this point, we merge our front stage with our backstage story. Leslie asks Gonzo what he sees in Camila. Are you kidding? Everything. She's beautiful, witty, charming, delightful company, a good cook, and she's very talented. Lies. <laughs> yeah. He lets... Leslie know that she's beautiful, witty, charming, and very talented. And not only that, but she can dance. And Gonzo's eyes never leave Camila's legs while she's dancing because Gonzo's a simple Muppet. Yeah, she comes out and does a Spanish flower dance. I'm not saying she's not those things. I'm saying he doesn't care about any of that stuff. I think he does. All he cares about is the drumsticks. I think that shows off the drumsticks, though. I think Gonzo does care, but these are all secondary or tertiary. We're going to find out later. I'm not so sure. Yeah. And then we see a return that I was not expecting to see. No. Um, the Venda, the Venda, Venda, Venda face. But yeah. Venda, but it's Venda wish now. And also yeah, Venda wish it grants a man's wish to be taller, but it does not make him a baller. You just be me by like half a second. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl with a good, I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit and a hat with a bat. I wish I was a little bit taller. 
It turns him into a Pez dispenser. It does. Like kind of like a giraffe and kind of like a Pez dispenser. If that guy wasn't a Muppet, he probably would have been decapitated because it's. Oh, yeah. Vindawish has been spending its time in really bad horror movies, just yanking people's heads up. And this is where someone got the premise for Big. Yeah, so Big Bird 6. Big Bird male or female? I always assumed male. I'm not sure. But Gonzo's a very fluid Muppet. Yeah, he's definitely Pan. He's in love with art. Gonzo serenades Camila with Gonzo's song, um, which, by the way, I hope that at some point I've got the gall to try to serenade someone with something called Nick's song. Oh, Sinatra or Mick Jagger will probably want to record it, but I want you to hear it from me first. Uh. You alone, you are my one and only chicken steady. And if you leave, I will alone and lonely, sick and ready. Terrific idea for an act, Camilla. You're sweeter than wine or vanilla, Camilla. Because there's no shame like no shame. But the song is interrupted by Big Bird's arrival, for whom Gonzo says that he has just the one thing lacking in chickens, bulk. I'm going to avoid making a litany of jokes right here, because I want you to keep me on as a co-host. And we got to go to bed. (laughs) Right. But the jealous Camilla hits Gonzo over the head with a flower pot because that's the right fix for an attention span. That was funny. (laughs) The song Gonzo song was written by the Muppet folks. Music by Derek Scott and lyrics by Jewel and Lingham. Are we okay with Gonzo being attracted to Big Bird? No, but mostly for statutory reasons. Yeah. Well, yeah. One, legally. Legally, it's an issue. But also just like. How did they think that was a good idea? <laughs> is this is this their way of like adultifying Big Bird just a little bit for the episode, you know, to fit in with the Muppet Show more? I don't know. There's another string of jokes that I'm just not going to make. And also it means Gonzo's not into chickens. Gonzo's just into birds. I think Gonzo's into feathers. He's a little like a turkey. Yeah, a little like a turkey, but not much. I guess not. We go backstage again and we see Dr. Bunsen Honeydew being helpful, if very percussively so. Yeah, he does. We see a return of the guy that Vindowish had effectively deformed, asking Dr. Honeydew for help with shortening his neck. And Dr. Honeydew presents him with their latest therapy technique in shortening necks, a baseball bat. He swings it around and the man ducks to avoid being hit. And it works. It was a good little fake out because I was also sure that Dr. Honeydew was just going to hit this guy. But then what I, I like the moment though when Kermit comes in afterwards and trips over him. <laughs> Please, Dr. Honeydew, don't leave a mess backstage. If you're through playing with him, put him away. Kermit has had to cover up a lot of Dr. Honeydew's indiscretions. <laughs> that is possible that he's covering up some. He knows a lot of things about the good doctor. <laughs> um. And then we get our big finale featuring Leslie and Big Bird singing a song that even I have heard. Love will keep us together. Stop, stop, because I really love you. Stop, stop, I've been thinking of you. Look in my heart and let love keep us together. 
It was originally written and recorded by Neil Sedaka in 1974, but it would it's best known for being the number one hit for Captain and Tennille. They're like bird watching? Yeah. Kind of chasing each other around this kind of woodsy set. I feel like it was a weird song choice for anything including Big Bird. Yeah, there's a line where Big Bird says, you're mine now. Yeah. That's uncomfortable <laughs> on at least six levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the song, I mean, the song's not like explicit or anything, but it is a love song. But it's not like a platonic love song. It's a romantic love song, right? But I'm also aware, like songs that, love songs that aren't particularly explicit or suggestive still work as lullabies. I don't know if this is one of those songs. Especially because it features the long you the line you belong to me now. Uh, I thought this was fine. Like again, she sounded great. We're gonna keep saying that because she just does. She really does. Plays it to the freaking roof. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think she just got fooled. Like I think she I think she thought I'm on a show with puppets, and I have to be a cartoon character. Hmm. Stop, cause I really love you. Stop, stop. I'll be thinking of you. Look at my heart in the glow. Keep us together. They don't go too far into the paint, so it's not necessarily no. something worth belaboring, but it did. No, like they're not I, singing Afternoon Delight. <laughs> oh, that would have been great, though, because I miss Arrested Development. At our closing, Gonzo tries to tell Camilla that he'll never look at another bird again and then realizes that he's not actually speaking to Camilla, but to a different chicken. And then he tells Leslie that chickens all look the same to him, and they peck him before pecking each other. It's, yeah, Gonzo is making it real hard to defend him on that one. Yeah, I don't like that one. I don't like that sentiment. Like I said, I I was a little, my racism radar was a little on edge already. Hmm. So I was just I was just looking for it, but the idea that, he, that all the chickens look the same to him, I don't know how old that trope is, but I'm sure it's older than 1978. Oh, absolutely. I don't think Big Bird worked. I don't think he worked on this episode. I, I'm trying to think of another guest that he would have worked with. Bert and Ernie, they just played like Fozzie and Kermit, right? You can, that stuff can work. With Big Bird, he's so innocent and so young that like, he reasonably, I mean, it's your, I would say that it's probably, if he wasn't Kermit's nephew, it would be darn right illegal for them to have Robin backstage at this place. I'm forgetting her name. There was a guest from, what's, I don't remember if it was this season or season two, but she, that's going to bother me. Uh, I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember her name, but she did like a lot of weird set pieces that seemed like they belonged on Sesame Street. Oh, Judy Collins. Judy Collins. I think Big Bird could have worked with Judy Collins. Next time, you've got the Eye of the Tiger. Come back uh, next time, and we will be talking <laughs> about uh, the next couple episodes, special guest stars, German bombshell Elkie Summer, and Rocky Balboa himself, Sylvester Sly Stallone. Nick, what's your favorite Sylvester Stallone movie? What Stallone movies have I seen? This shouldn't be that hard to think of. I've, I haven't seen Rocky. I don't think I've seen any of the Rambos either. You've seen Demolition Man? There we go. Okay, good. Demolition Man. Got it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that one should be interesting. From what I remember, he's a pretty good guest, actually. I could see it. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. I'm Chad. 
I'm Nick. Thank you for listening. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Have we ever said that this show is for the birds? Yes, and we'll keep saying it till it gets a laugh. <laughs> <laughs>